coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change. You know, a lot of times what I'll tell people who, who don't necessarily believe that they have addiction and they have a real problem is, okay, well then let's do an experiment. Pick, you know, pick a day, 30 days from now, mark it on your calendar and say, I am not going to use any substance from now until that day, no matter what. And if you can make it that 30 days without using anything and life's okay and you're not miserable, fine. Maybe you don't have an issue. If you find yourself making an excuse, oh, I forgot about my niece's wedding was this month, or oh, I forgot we were having some people over for a barbecue, so I had a couple of beers or whatever. Like if there's an excuse anywhere in that 30 days to use some sort of substance, I think it's worth looking at this that this may, may be true substance use or at least the start of a substance use problem. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Loeb Blassingame, and I am your host. Today on Ask the Expert, we have Dr. Nicole Labor. Dr. Nicole Labor is an addiction specialist who attended and graduated medical school in Erie, Pennsylvania at the Lake Erie College of Osteopathic Medicine. Following graduation and residency, she completed a fellowship in addiction medicine through Geisinger in Northeastern Pennsylvania. She currently serves as the medical director at 180, a treatment center that offers inpatient and outpatient chemical dependency and behavioral health services in Worcester, Ohio. She's also the director of the Addiction Medicine Fellowship for SUMA, the medical director for Interval Brotherhood Home, and the medical director for Esper Treatment Center in Erie, Pennsylvania. Dr. Labor spends time educating healthcare professionals, churches, schools, and community members on the disease of addiction and works to remove the stigma surrounding addiction. In 2019, she published a best-selling book titled The Addictaholic Deconstructed, an irreverently quick and dirty education by a doctor who says fuck a lot. This was such a fun episode for me. Dr. Labor, sober since 2005, former heroin addict, um, while all having was using into year three of medical school, got sober and has been on a mission uh, and has a passion for recovery and eliminating stigma and increasing education around the topic, which all those things I am passionate about and absolutely love. Nicole and I related on so many different levels, but, you know, mommy wine culture, which I thought was interesting that mommy wine culture, you know, this is something that uh, it affects her as well, that, you know, is it's strong enough to, to reach even an, an addiction specialist doctor. We also talked about things like length of stay in treatment, what the definition of addiction is, how we can do fMRI scans on the brain, how chronic stress looks like addiction on scans in the brain. So many different, really, really amazing nuggets of wisdom and resources. I was just blown away by her experience, um, including her experience as the wife of an addict who relapsed and, and died of an overdose. Her late husband battled addiction and lost that battle. So she, Nicole has been on almost every side of this fight. And it was just really great to talk to her about it. And I hope that you get as much out of it as I did. Lots of information and 
to further that information, please check out her book on Amazon, The Addict, Holic Deconstructed, and Irreverently Quick and Dirty Education by a Doctor Who Says Fuck a Lot. All right, episode 115. Let's do this. You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We're a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Nicole, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. I know you get asked to talk a lot and uh, and I'm grateful that you said yes to this opportunity. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Always happy to contribute to the uh, awakening of society, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's hope. Let's hope that's what it is. So just to, you know, kind of, this is an episode of Ask the Expert. We, I like to bring someone on who can talk about the science of addiction, not just share stories and, and relatable anecdotes. You are an addiction, a board certified addictionologist, um, addiction specialist. Is there a specific word that, that we term that you guys like to be called? No. I mean, some people go with addictionologists, but I'm just an addiction medicine specialist or physician, addiction medicine physician, I guess. How many addiction medicine physicians do you think that we currently have? Is that a relatively new area of medicine? So I believe there is, there's been addiction psychiatry for a long time. Addiction medicine, like with a basis outside of psychiatry is relatively new, probably the last 15 years. But I think even combined psychiatrists and addiction medicine physicians, I think there's probably less than 10,000 in the country, probably around six or seven would be my guess. Um, New fellowships are being created every day. So the pool of uh, specialists grows, but yeah. As an addiction specialist, you talk a lot about the disease model, right? And and as a physician, that's something that you're you're very familiar with. I've heard you talk about this before, but it's something I harp on all the time. And I, I want my listeners are probably tired of hearing me do, say it, so I'm going to let you do it. So can you talk a little bit about the difference or the similarities in chronic illness? How, how does addiction meet the criteria for chronic illness? And how many you know, in, in that same vein of how many addiction specialists are there, how many chronic illness, how many diabetes or endocrinologist specialists do you think we have as it compares to how many specialists we have for addiction and how those two things relate? So for the first question, I do think, you know, that's sort of, um, the discussion that I do about, uh, the disease model, right? Um, So what is the disease model? And so essentially the disease model says you have an organ, there's a problem with the organ, a defect of some kind, and then symptoms because of that defect, right? And so that could be chronic or acute. It doesn't really matter. For addiction, you know, the, 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 the 
organ is the brain, right? The brain is defective. There's um, a part of the limbic system, the midbrain that's broken, and then part of the cortex is not working properly either. Um, and then the symptoms are the behaviors that we see, right? So, and the, and cravings and this overwhelming need to like escape and no other coping skills and all of those things. So it, in that regard, um, that's, it's a disease, right? The chronicity of it simply is that once these changes occur in your brain, they are going to consistently be there, although they can be modified according to like what you're doing, right? Just like any other chronic disease. So in acute phase or acute on chronic phase, meaning your addiction is active, but you've actually had some time, like clean time, basically time away from using, you can very quickly go back into active addiction, right? So it's this chronic timeline. And then ultimately the idea is that you provide treatment throughout the lifetime, right? It's not just like, okay, you go to rehab, you're done and now you're fixed and have a nice life. It's like staying connected to individuals throughout the lifespan of that disease process. So offering everything from harm reduction all the way through, how do you thrive beyond not using, right? So that's sort of the chronic nature of the illness. As far as uh, other specialists, honestly, I, I would just be guessing. I have no idea. I think it's probably similar. I mean, I think endocrinologists, there's probably only five, 6,000. I don't know. But I also don't know what the comparison of diabetics to addicts is. I don't know how many people with addiction versus how many people with diabetes or other endocrine disorders. So I don't, I'm not, I mean, anybody will, anybody who knows me will tell you that statistics, I just make them up. I, I don't ever look. I don't know. <laughs> numbers. I don't, I hate them. So I just make shit up. That sounds good, but I have no idea. It's so I, I looked this up. I was actually looking this up as for something that isn't totally related, but it said, I looked, the CDC is showing that in 2018, 19, that about 93,000 people died of overdoses in America. And it was for diabetes. It was like 120,000. So diabetes and addiction were, and, and, and that's overdoses. That's not, you know, alcohol related car crashes or, uh, cocaine related heart attacks or whatever it is. Right. So, you know, those numbers are probably comparable if not addiction, like, you know, somewhere related being much higher. And I just thought that was really interesting. I, I hear, you know, you, you're someone who's in recovery, a person in recovery a long time. You you got sober in 05? Yeah. Is that right? Right? Okay. And uh, I got sober in 06. And I have heard many times this confusion about why is it, uh, how is it a cr chronic illness like diabetes that when the person is making the decision to put the substance in their body, which causes the addiction, right? And what I always say is that that's the same thing that happens with diabetes. That's and the relapse rates are around the same. Why is it that we are able to have such a different perspective as a, as a country of chronic disease as it relates to diabetes and have such heavy judgment on addiction? Do you have thoughts on why, why we can't see the similarities or, and, and I say we as like a, you know, the general 
population or even maybe the medical community? Why can't we understand and see the similarities between so many of the things that we're doing and substance use disorder? I I mean, there are so many aspects to that question. So, I mean, I think first of all, when we're talking about something like diabetes, number one, you know, type one versus type two, they both fall on the timeline of chronicity and they both are diseases. Obviously type two has more of a choice element for some people, you know, excessive use of sugar and um, excessive uh, caloric excess, you know, people gain weight and then they're more likely to have diabetes. So there's some, some relatability there. But I also think you can do some blood work on somebody and say, you have diabetes and here is a medicine that takes care of it. And in America, at least, that's sort of the defining characteristic of our healthcare system, right? Let's throw some fucking medication at something and hope it fixes it. Or let's design a medication to fix every problem. And so because that exists, you know, partly I think people are more inclined to like look at that as, oh yeah, that's a disease. You can't help it. Also, you can measure, it's measurable, right? You can measure it. And it's not measured by behavior. So, you know, people who are, let's say, type 2 diabetic, let's say for that, for an individual, it is almost entirely self-induced. They've just eaten themselves into this metabolic state. Even for that person, they're not, you know, they're not like stealing from their loved ones in order to support their sugar habit. You know, now I I think that there are some things that we we could look at and say like, hey, the the cost on the healthcare system of this person, let's if they're on Medicaid or, you know, the the burden on the healthcare system of this person repeatedly being in the hospital and stuff. I, I mean, I do think there is some effect on society, but we don't look at it the same way as an individual stealing your bank card to support the habit. So I think there's the, that behavioral piece that people really struggle with. And then I think the other aspect is this, everybody eats sugar, right? And most people acknowledge that they like sugar and maybe more so than they should. So I can relate to you, the diabetic, right? And on the flip side, most everybody other than certain religious groups has, has made the choice to use alcohol at some point, right? Um, they've had one drink at some point in their life. Or and many many have used a substance, right, whether marijuana or cocaine or something, one or two times. So essentially, without knowing what your genetic profile is, and without knowing that that one-time use is going to trigger your addictive gene or not, everyone has made the same choice as an addict or an alcoholic. But but there's almost this sense of sort of um, moral superiority. Like, well, I drank and was not able, was able to maintain a normal life and it didn't affect my family. Right. Without, with with sort of the blinders on to, to not have that same uh, ability to look at somebody and go, well, I can eat sugar and I don't have to have diabetes and wind up in the hospital every day. Like, you know, and so where does that come from? And I, that I don't know other than I think that we're probably do engaging in those behaviors for different reasons, right? So we eat sugar, we eat food to live. Obviously we don't need as much sugar as we eat to live, but in general we associate food with life sustaining efforts. Um, Whereas using a substance is more of a coping skill or a socialization skill. And so for somebody to look at their use of a substance, alcohol generally, and say, well, you know, but this, I don't need this to live. And so I don't want to acknowledge that it really could ever be a problem because then why am I doing it really? 
you know, right. I don't, nobody needs right. to drink. So well, the they need to drink. Doing, they just don't need to drink alcohol. <laughs> yes. Nobody needs to drink alcohol. Correct. So yeah. What about the scan, the brain scans that can show a biological change uh, you know, you, you've talked about this in some of your uh, PowerPoints and presentations before that you can actually see some changes on the brain and as it relates to addiction, but we don't do that in America. We are not scanning people's, I mean, you know, Dr. Amon's clinic, I think they do a lot of scans, but many places aren't doing the scans. Why don't we do those scans to show that there is a change because I think, I don't think there's any need to, honestly, I, I think other than to show that, like to be <laughs> able to show that it exists, like, look, there's these changes and people who use substances problematically and are unable to stop, you notice a downregulation of dopamine receptor activity in their midbrain, right? You notice a decrease in activity in the cortex. So on, on functional MRI, right? So you can see that there is a difference between these two groups of people. However, you never know when that change is going to occur. Right. So for some people, their very first use of any substance actually turns on that gene and triggers that change and their their midbrain downregulates those receptors. For other people, they use for 10 years before it actually happens. For other people, they use one substance for years and years and years. They never activate those changes in the brain and then they use a different substance for a short period of time and then that change occurs. So you know, I could put you in a brain scanner today and it looks normal. And then tomorrow you use again. And that's the, that's the use that's going to trigger that. That's going to turn that gene on and trigger it. So, you know, to put you in a scanner today and say, Oh no, you don't have addiction. Well, then that kind of opens the floodgates, I think, for people to, to think they have free reign to go do it. But again, you're not, I mean, the cost of that test just to be able to say, no, today you don't have addiction it's pretty useless, right? Because if you don't have addiction, but you're using substances and your life is problematic, it's not going to hurt you to go through a treatment process like somebody who has true addiction. What do you think, what is the difference? How do you define the difference between the true addiction of the person who's, you know, truly addicted that, that genes turned on and the person who's been using substances for a long time, the genes not turned on, but it's causing problems in their, their life. The inability to stop. Really, the inability to stop without help is kind of the defining characteristic because I think I think you can get problems with anything. Anybody can have problems from their use. Right. And that's sort of one of the pieces that we have to look out because if you have no problems at all, then I don't, we're not even having a discussion about it. Right. So so the question is, you're using substances and problems have been created, whether they're you know physical, medical, emotional, financial, whatever, social. You're having some sort of problem from your use. Well, okay, so now we're going to have the discussion. Is it addiction or is it just, you know, problematic use? And the difference would be the inability to just stop. So, you know, a lot of times what I'll tell people who, who don't necessarily believe that they have addiction or they have a real problem is, okay, well, then let's do an experiment. Pick, you know, pick a day 30 days from now, mark it on your calendar and say, I am not going to use any substance from now until that day, no matter what. And if you can make it that 30 days without using anything and life's okay and you're not miserable, fine. Maybe you don't have an issue. If you find yourself making an excuse, oh, I forgot about my niece's wedding was this month or, oh, I forgot we were having some people over for a barbecue. So I had a couple of beers or whatever. Like if there's an excuse anywhere in that 30 days to use some sort of substance, I think it's worth looking at this, that this may, may be true substance use or at least the start of a substance use problem. Versus just, yeah, problematic use. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's a, um, one of the ways that we look at people who say they want to moderate. That's one of the, the, you know, homework assignments that people get is, okay, you know, if, if you want to moderate, then you need to be, to be able to stop in the first place. So that's part of the moderation. And then you, you moderate from there. What you, you've talked about this before that once that gene is turned on, that the person who says, um, and forgive me, I'm, I'm not quoting you correctly here, but the person who basically says that they, oh, I, I, you know, shot heroin for X amount of time and now I just drink or th- that basically they switch substances and now it's a different entity, but that gene has been turned on. How, how do you, I do know people who have done that and, you know, I, like you, am an intravenous heroin, uh, former intravenous heroin addict. So I don't really, there's no such thing as that, that I know of the, of moderating that behavior. So I've never tried. Um, but there are people I know who've been, who, who've been able to change that. And it looks to my eyes like, I don't know, their, their life isn't ending. How, how does that work in terms of that gene being turned on? So the question is, and I, and I think that this is like the, the philosophical point is, did it, how do you know that gene is turned on? Right. So they could have used, you know, heroin for years and years, had problems and then switched over to alcohol or marijuana, say, for example, and they are successfully, successfully using that substance without any problems in their life for years. Well, again, I might argue that I, I'm not convinced that that gene was turned on. Mm. Yeah, because I, I think that once the gene, once your gene, the gene activates and the brain needs higher than normal dopamine levels, it's going to continue to need those higher than normal dopamine levels. So, you know, if you're smoking pot to get through a, a stressful Tuesday, well, when your mom dies, that's not going to be sufficient. So, your, you know, that brain is most likely to seek out something that has a higher flow of dopamine. You know, that gives a higher flow, and so you flex back to that original drug of choice, and then there's this relapse process. I also know people who will tell me, "Oh, I was addicted to meth, but I, um, I stopped using meth, and you know, I occasionally have a drink, and I occasionally smoke pot, and I occasionally take a Klonopin for my anxiety, and I don't have, I've never abused those things, and haven't gone back to meth." Okay. Well, again, I don't have a brain scan and I'm, you know, maybe you're super lucky. Maybe you're just, but my guess would be that you did not trigger your addiction gene. But I think people have this idea that like, just because you use the substance and get arrested and even need a a physical detox or something that you automatically qualify as having these changes, you know, in, in the brain, like you could smoke cigarettes, cough all the time and feel like you're wheezing. But if we do a pulmonary function test, you don't have COPD, you don't have emphysema, right? You're just, you maybe have the starting stages of it, or, you know, your smoking is like tarring up your, your airways, but you don't actually have that disease. You may sound like it and look like it, but you don't. So, <laughs> right. Yeah. So it's tough to know, but for, for me, when I, t- when I talk to people, I started going to treatment very young and uh, I seemed to have problems with many substances. And one of the things that in my life, it it has come down to, I I got sober at 19 and 
at this stage in the game when there's new substances or when I wonder about, you know, oh, was that, is it circumstantial? Was it, you know, things, things that honestly are, are probably laughable for me to even wonder. But when those thoughts do come to mind, what I say is like, it's not worth testing the theory because if I'm wrong, if I'm wrong, I am the fentanyl overdose. I am the, you know, and my children are, you know, a statistic and I'm a statistic and all that. So if I'm wrong, it, it's, it's disastrous, right? So to me, testing that, testing those waters is not worth it. I know a lot of people, um, you know, I've been in 12 step programs for, um, you know, actually more than, more than the amount of time I've been sober. And I have seen a lot of people I, I, who, went out and tried that experiment and said, you know, I did the meth. I had, I had a friend who did the, who did math for a long time. She went out, tried to drink again, ended up a quadriplegic at 23. And I remember watching that going, yeah, but I mean, how do you find, you know, those are the things we don't, we don't know. Some people do make it work when you're, you know, you work with substance use disorder patients when they have those questions for you, like, how do I know? How do I make that decision to know whether or not it's turned on or not? How do you talk to people about the curiosity and making those types of decisions, you know, when, when you don't have that fMRI? So this, similar to, to what you said, I mean, truly, like, if I told you that eating, you know, chocolate was, had a X, you know, an 80% chance of going back out and using heroin, you know, what is the benefit you get from that chocolate? And is that benefit worth the potential risk? Right. But the, the problem, the biggest problem is that we live in a society that does not regard sacrifice and sort of like, right. Thinking ahead as a valuable tool, right. We were this instant gratification and I want what I want kind of society. So, we, we, I mean, it's a struggle no matter what. It's a struggle in all aspects, not even just addiction, like all people, you know, like a, a, a quick and probably terrible example that I use all the time, though, like is my husband is not in addiction. He's not, doesn't have addiction. He's a normal person. Occasionally he drinks alcohol or whatever. He goes, let's say he goes out and has one or two beers and he's still under the legal limit, right? but he's driving home and he gets, you know, rear-ended by someone else and the cops come and they do a breathalyzer and he's under the legal limit, but they note that he has alcohol in his breath or he admitted to drinking one beer. Well, that person that hit him is a 19 year old who has a lawyer for a father. They read the police report and they decide, Oh no, we're going to sue. Right. So they decide to sue saying, no, it was his fault. He was clearly impaired, even though he was, you know, under the legal limit. And then they also find out that he's married to a physician. And so now they want to sue for, you know, more because they believe that I have a bunch of money that I don't have. Right. And so now your decision to have one or two beers while out and then drive affects me and all the things that I've worked for. So what I need is for you to make the sacrifice to either not drink while you're out or make sure that you have a ride or something else, you know, that's going to ensure that that doesn't happen to affect me. Like it, it requires that sacrifice. And that's kind of how I view, you know, substances. Cause I have the same thoughts. I mean, I got sober at 25, I'm 42 now. 
there are lots of times and, and our whole society is so fixated on wine for some reason. Like every woman over the age of 35, apparently is supposed to be like a wine connoisseur, like rosé all day, right? Like t-shirts and everything promote wine use. And so there's a part of me that is like, Oh yeah, you know, I could probably drink a glass of wine, but yes, having been in the rooms of 12 step groups for so long and having seen so many people believe that they could handle it. Yes. In my heart, I believe I could have a glass of wine and be fine. I believe I could have two and be fine. I believe probably I could drink successfully, what is the benefit of that one or two glasses of wine that makes it worth potentially ruining my whole life and everything that I've worked for? It just doesn't exist, right? Like nothing exists that would, would make it worth it for me to give everything that I've obtained and achieved in this sober life, uh, worth giving up. I, I just, so that's where it is. But I think that it's, it is really a struggle for newcomers, for people early in sobriety, because they haven't gained that much from sobriety. So it's not like the fear of losing, but, but again, it's just like, well, so then it's more about like, is it worth getting the life back that you had? Right. So you may not have that much now, but it's certainly not the shit show it was two weeks ago or a month ago or six months ago. So is that cookie? Is that beer is that joint is it worth whatever that little bit of high that you get from it that little tiny bit of euphoria that momentary escape is it really worth going back to that life and i'm not saying that one time is going to do that but it could right and so why take that risk so it is it's a little bit about sacrifice which we're just not good at yeah yeah it, it's that's it's so true i love that you brought up mommy wine culture too because I have little kids and, and when they were born, I have uh, twin boys. And when they were born, I said to my mother, I said, well, I'm fucked. I was born. I have, I'm missing a parental skill, like a parental tool, you know? And the longer I've been a mother, the more I'm like, I, I mean, the more I picture myself, like how I, I can barely keep them safe the, the, you know, the, my, my, my little boys are like, they are jumping off of things, trying to kill themselves. Like if I were drinking, even normal drinking, I feel like everyone would be in danger. But I, you know, when I was 19 and or I guess I was 18 at the time trying to prove I got, I, I got sober a lot of times and tried so hard to prove that I was a heroin, a drug addict but not an alcoholic. And there are lots of reasons why that's really silly in my story. But I really was like, I'm 16, I'm 15, I'm 17. You know, this cannot be the end of my drinking. And, and I did, so I tried to drink just wine. And I have this story of a guy that I was friends with who came over. No one had heard from me for a while. And I had been trying to prove this, this theory and uh, he comes over and the way he tells it is, I have three bottles of red wine. I'm in my bed. All the lights in my house are off. The stereo is blaring Kenny G, like super, like out every window, super fucking loud. Everyone, you know, he's like pulls up to my house and like just Kenny G coming out every orifice of this house. And I'm crying with all the lights off and three bottles of wine, drinking the bottles of wine at 18 years old. And so uh, I have to like think of, and like, wow, I really like, there is no circumstance under which I can 
like rosé all day for me is is just it's still like how did I come across Kenny G like I somehow I really wanted to get in the mood for for like crying wine user and and I do I do see I do see like you know people doing it and they make it look so sexy and they like smell the wine and they do all the things and you know and like to me my version of that right is like flicking my syringe or whatever I'm like that's so hot and 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 medical you know or and and it's just like I luckily I'm I feel like I got lucky and that I'm severe enough that it's easier and it was still even hard easier for me to go yeah that's just like that's just not normal like you just can't you can't there's no there's no place to paint that as normal the people i really feel for and that you you probably spend a decent amount of time with the ones who have their shit together and like alcohol is clearly a problem but they still have the house, the car, the family. And that to me looks so confusing. I, I, I mean, and interestingly, when I heard your story, you didn't stop using heroin till year three of medical school, right? You two or three of medical school. Yeah. I mean, I, I went to UCLA sober. I went to college sober and, and struggled to, to like, you know, ha, you know, show up on time and all the things. So that to me, I mean, you were using heroin, but it ha- had it been alcohol, everyone would have said, yeah, you're stressed. You're in medical school, right? I mean, I'm sure you saw that with other people. Sure. Yep. Yep. So do you still have that same conversation of what's it worth or how much do you care? How do you have the conversation about addiction or do you take addiction out of the conversation and just say, we're trying to solve these problems you're having? I, I think what it comes like, so it's always, I'm always hesitant telling my story Cause a lot of times, yes, it almost, and if I really go back and go into it, you know, like I actually started doing better in college and, and better in medical school when I ramped up my drug use, because again, I think it quieted <laughs> all the crazy demons right. in my head. Right. Um, right. But I'm not trying to like glorify the use of it. So I, you know, I have, I try to use some caution, but I always, you know, like, did I get through the first two medical two and a half years of medical school while actively using substances pretty heavily? Yeah, I did. But did I do it well? No, you know, and and so like, you know, and I, I sort of like, uh, walked around with this badge of like, you know, the joke, the old joke, like, what do you call the person who graduates last in medical school? You know what I mean? Like, who cares what your grades are? Like, here's how well you do as long as you get the bare minimum done. Cause that's who you want treating your fucking illnesses, right? The person who did the bare fucking minimum. (laughs) So, but like. Yeah. I, so for me, when I'm talking to some of these people that are sort of functional, like number one, you're sitting in front of me because obviously there's been some sort of issue, right? Because people out there doing great are not coming to my office and meeting with me, right? So there's been some sort of dysfunction. So the question, yes, has to be like, what is it worth to you? Like, do you really like the way your life is going? In which case, please continue what you're doing. And we'll just wait and see if it doesn't get any worse and you're happy living at this level, then great. That's, that's your life. It's not my job to make you want a different life. But if you're here because you don't love the way that your life is going and I'm pointing out one or, you know, this one thing as something you could remove from your life that would cause it to get better. I'm almost a hundred percent certain then that's really up to to them to, to sort of take and and consider. Right. Because for me, I believe that I got through a bunch of stuff using substances. And I think about, wow, how well would I have fucking done if I wasn't using? 
Like I could have been amazing. I could be a neurosurgeon right now. You know, like if I had really, I mean, honestly, I probably could be a neurosurgeon right now if I really wanted to be. No, I mean, you were doing downers. Yeah. I was doing everything. I was doing whatever, whatever you had. Downers were definitely the drug of choice. You're like, yeah, whatever. But yeah, I, I mean, I just think like, well, like what would I have accomplished if I was like not trying to just get through the bare minimum? So same thing for these people. Like, well, you have a great job and you have a great family. You still have your house and your car. Like, what do you want to you In a perfect world, you could have whatever you want right now, whatever career, whatever family, live wherever you want. What would it be? If it's better than what you have right now, well, then why don't we eliminate one of these things, the one thing we know that holds people back and see what happens. And if you find that you can eliminate that thing and you continue to stay where you're at and not move forward and achieve those greater things, well, then again, it's a conversation worth having. It's something worth looking at, right? But I I just think that... One of the big problems I run into a lot is this idea, this belief that, and particularly people in the recovery community, people who are already kind of sober and have been through it or whatever, is this desire to make people want it. And and if I could take out of my heart, like the amazing things that I've gotten in recovery, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, and like just physically implanted in somebody, I would in a second, because I certainly want them to have, you know, everyone to have what I've had, but like, to make them just want that, like, like, that's not my, that's not my role. It's not my role in life. Right. It's not my role. Like take, take the addiction out of the equation. I have friends who are perfectly happy where they are in life. It's not my job to be like, don't you want to start a business? Don't you want to write a book? Don't you want to do that? You know, don't you want to do all these things? Like, no, that's not, you know, if they come to me and say, Hey, I want to do these things. I don't know how to do it. That's one thing, but to just go up to people and be like, how could you be satisfied just doing what you're doing? Like how judgy is that? Right. So same thing. Like, how can you be satisfied living a life where you're using substances every day? Like just because I can see that it's holding you back doesn't mean that you want more than that. And it's not my job to make you want more. So you know, I, I, th- I struggle with that a lot, especially family members want to come and tell me like, how do I get my loved one to see that there's a problem and want to stop? And I'm like, I, I don't know. I don't know how you do that. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hi, it's Christiana, your producer. And if you're like me and you love coffee or coffee alternatives, you can now shop with the cause by visiting lionrock.life and clicking on shop. 100% of the profits fund substance abuse treatment for those who can't afford it. You can't really go wrong. We're now carrying, in addition to our amazing coffee, if you haven't tried it, matcha maiden organic matcha powder, love me some green tea, golden grind turmeric latte blend, and prana chai original blend. So we've got something for everyone. We love mixing these delicious coffee alternatives with something like milk, or almond milk, oat milk, or even just hot water. The organic matcha powder is vegan-friendly, gluten-free, dairy-free, and simply delectable. The turmeric latte blend, the winner of Australia's Best Beverage product in 2017, helps bring about relaxation and restoration while also nurturing your body. The prana chai, that has been my pregnancy craving, it's amazing, is blended in Melbourne from all natural ingredients and uses 100% Australian quality honey blended by hand with tea and whole spices. By shopping for coffee and coffee alternatives at lionrock.life, you are also helping provide substance abuse treatment for someone who can't afford it. Your favorite drink with the cause. So again, 
Go to lionrock.life, click on shop, and you'll see our coffee and our brand new coffee alternatives. We hope that you enjoy it. Send us a picture. Maybe we will feature you on our Instagram as well. You have been the family member, your husband, my late husband. first husband. Thank you. Your late husband. Thank you. Um, your late husband, he struggled with addiction and you got to feel that probably very personally. Does that inform that experience for you? Yeah. I, I mean, I think that experience was really, it was enlightening in terms of w- what it's like, the codependency and what that feels like. Right. Because I was really good at saying like, you know, um, nothing could make me stop wanting to use. I had to want, it had nothing to do with anybody else. I could very clearly see how my use had nothing to do with anybody else or what they wanted. But yet when my husband relapsed and started using, it was very personal. Like, aren't I worth stopping for? And isn't our relationship worth holding on to? Why, why is, why are drugs more important? Like intellectually I knew, and emotionally I had been in that place, but being in a sober place, it was really hard to understand. I mean, it just became very difficult to to sort of grasp that. And then the progression into that codependent sort of behavior of, you know, I'm going to, I'm checking the bank account every day and I'm, you know, coming home early from work to see if I can catch him selling something or do, you know, doing all these things that like, how is this a normal life for somebody, you know? And, and, and like in, when you're in it, of course, it's just slowly progressed to that point. So you're kind of like, I know this is not right, but it doesn't seem as dysfunctional as somebody standing outside of it, looking at it going, what the fuck are you doing? Right. So, I mean, that was really, really hard. And then, you know, the universe always intervenes, like when you're not doing the things that you should do. And so they, you know, he wound up having to go to to jail for a little while and that kind of took him out of the picture. And that sort of put me in this position of, you know, what, what do I do now? And so I, that's when I really started going, I actually started going to Al-Anon 12 step meetings because there's not enough 12 step fucking meetings in my life. And, um, and really working on that part. Right. So that was really kind of where I had some, some real like aha moments and some growth in terms of me. And then I struggled. I really struggled with what am I going to do when he gets out of jail? Like, are we going to try and continue this relationship? Am I going to just set this boundary and say, no, I can't do it. You know, I really was kind of in this place of we need to live kind of separate lives because I need to see from an outside perspective that you're going to get well that you're going to do it and not because of me or you want to keep me or the relationship because that clearly isn't enough. So I need to see that you really want to stay clean because that's what you want in life. And then when I see that happening, I feel like we can try again, like we can come back together and really make it work. Right. And so that was like what I was holding out for. But in the meantime, I'm just going to kind of live my life as if, you know, you're, you're still in jail because I'm not going to sit here and hold my breath watching you but I'm also not giving up. I I want to see success, you know? Um, And ultimately it was like the similar pattern to when we, when he was not in jail and it was that, you know, he, he'd get well for a short period of time and then he'd use again and try and hide it and the same patterns. And then when I got the call from his mom that he had overdosed, you know, there was none of the, the, that like, relief that I probably would have felt if I was stuck in that really like that codependent relationship. Right. Cause it was so chaotic that I think that if that had happened when we were together, there would have been like a microsecond of this, like, Oh my God, it's finally over, you know? And then I'd feel like a fucking piece of shit for the rest of my life for even having that thought or, or feeling, 
but because the universe had intervened and we were in the, the sort of situation we were in, um, when I got that call, it was nothing but devastating. You know, there was no like relief to that. And so I just was able to just grieve about it and feel the loss, you know, and again, I was already in a better place because I was trying to really work on myself from that perspective. So if it wasn't for that, I mean, I don't know what would have happened, but yeah, I definitely get what that's like. Like I, you just love the person so much. You want them to be better, not just for you, but for themselves. And they just, there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do to make them want it. I, I, I did interventions for a while and, and I, you know, drug and alcohol counselor and I have, you know, went to lots of treatment centers and have my own experience. And I, when I talk to families, I always say, look, I'm going to give you what I know to be the helpful advice that you need and that you're looking for. And I'm also going to tell you in that same breath that I would have as much trouble doing what I'm saying if it were my family member as you are. And, and I always try to acknowledge that because, and people always say to me, Nicole, my husband is in, in recovery and, uh, 18 years. And, you know, so I have these two little boys who have two parents who, you know, the genetics and the whole thing. And, and it scares, you know, scares me to death. And I, people always say to me, but you'll be prepared. You'll know what to do. You'll, and I always laugh. I always laugh. I say, are you kidding me? I will be you know, I will be the best, absolute best Al-Anon. It, everything I know will go out the window. I will be on the corner with those kids trying to talk the drug dealers into giving them, you know, like, is it clean? I'll be, I'll have my, my purity test strips out there on the, like, it'll be, it'll be as bad, if not worse, because I know what happens. And, and it's just not, you know, it, it, it feels so different when, you can have all this knowledge and it just doesn't inoculate you from the feeling of loving someone so much that you want to save them. And, uh, and I, I, people don't believe me when I say that about, about our kids, but I just, I'm like, I'm, I'm not, that doesn't make me feel any better that I know about addiction. And frankly, uh, I don't know how you feel having been sober almost two decades, but I feel like the world, the drug world has changed so much that, that even now, you know, whatever I did know is not, doesn't feel that current. Yeah. I, I mean, I still, I don't know. I feel I'm pretty cynical and I, you know, I, I feel like, um, I don't know, maybe it was the work around my late husband or whatever, but I have really strong, strong boundaries. And I'm not, I'm not saying like, I'm not criticizing any parent ever for, you know, enabling, which I don't even really like as a term. I think just, you know, loving your kid the best that you can is however you can is the right thing to do. But I do, I do feel like I have these like sort because I see parents all the time sort of making that like, well, yeah, I don't, I just want my kid to live. Like I get it. Like I, I do. And I want my kid to live too, but what kind of life, right? Because I also don't feel like I was living any kind of life. And so you know, I, 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 I struggle with, you know, what, what would I do if, if my kid develops, you know, some sort of, I mean, I would certainly do everything I could. And I'm sure I will also revert back to some of the codependent behaviors as well, because you just want your kid to do well. And if I could just get this one thing in her head, if I could do this one thing for her, she'll get well, you know what I mean? And just keep trying and trying. But you know, I tell parents all the time who, who want to come, Oh, I want to kill these fucking dealers. They're, you know, they're, they put 
fentanyl and my kids heroin and blah, blah. blah. I'm like, you know, who doesn't accidentally get fentanyl people who aren't buying drugs. Like there's a good degree of accountability that has to sort of be upheld here. Like, I don't, I'm sure your kid didn't mean to overdose. Although quite frankly, I have met some that do, right. They tell their mom, no, I didn't mean to, you know, I didn't want fentanyl or whatever, but when I'm alone in the room with them, they sure, sure. Like, yeah, I was looking for it. It's cheap. It's easy to get like, that's what they want, you know? So, I mean, there's some of that, but I, I just, I, I do struggle seeing a lot of parents sort of putting the blame everywhere else and, and, and saying, you know, oh, not that what my kid's doing right is right, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, but your kid would not have encountered all of these other people and issues if they themselves were not looking or living in that world, right? So I feel like I would probably hold my kid to that that level of accountability. Like, you don't want to get ripped off. Don't fucking hang out with people who will rip you off, you know? Like, but I, I agree. Like, I, I do see that very slow trickle into like, it doesn't matter what I know. It's my kid and I want her to live no matter what. So yeah, it's tough. It's tough. Parenthood's pretty codependent in and of itself, right? The the way that that works out is, is that's a hard delineation to make between like codependency and, and being a parent. You, um, you've talked about chronic and severe stress being really, really important because they're almost identical uh, to addiction in the brain. Um, I find this to be really interesting, especially as someone who's sober a long time, because the lo- when I'm in periods of chronic stress these days, my addiction goes to sugar and food. And so I find it, so it, it's, it's, still there, still there, right? I'm still dealing with it just in a different area. How and and the the how anhedonia that that pleasure deafness comes into play. Can you talk a little bit about stress looking identical to addiction in the brain? Well when people experience chronic and severe stress, and generally we're talking about trauma, but really any okay. significant uh stressful event can in some individuals, and again, it always is, there's always a genetic component, but in certain individuals that will cause the downregulation of dopamine receptors in the midbrain, which is the exact same thing happens when you use substances repeatedly or highly rewarding substances. So for the traumatized individual with the genetic predisposition, their brain needs more dopamine to feel normal than somebody without that trauma. And that's the same thing that happens with chronic and repeated use of substances when someone actually has addiction, when they qualify to have the disease. That's the change in the brain that we're talking about. That same change happens with severe trauma in certain individuals. And so again, the substance is going to be the substances are going to be the only thing that make that person feel normal. And so then they'll continue they'll reach for substances to sort of feel normal, which will further traumatize them because you know, living a life of addiction in and of itself is pretty traumatic. So it just becomes like a big vicious cycle of a dopamine frenzy. Like you need it, you need it, you need it. And the only way to get it is from the substances, which then make you need it, need it, need it. And so it just, you just go round and round re-traumatizing and then, you know, changing the brain, recalibrating the brain. So they are very, very similar. And then I think to some lesser degree, the, the stress that we experience, um, and then, you know, reach for other, other things, um, that coping skill has more to do actually with glutamate and the triggers like people, places and things. So as soon as the brain realizes that food 
sugar, sex, whatever, um, provides some level of higher than normal dopamine, it remembers that as a coping skill versus like picking up the phone and calling somebody or whatever. Um, and it's easy and quick and readily accessible and not causing problems. And so the brain, well, not causing visible immediate problems. So the brain will reach for the, that coping skill over and over. Anything that, that gives it sort of a relief from distress in any way. So, and again, it'll depend. I mean, most people do get a good rush of dopamine from sugar, nothing close to drugs, obviously. Like you're not going to sell your ass at a truck stop for a ho-ho. Um, but you know, I mean, but you, you, you might sacrifice, you know, like, Oh, I'm, I'm, I have this goal of losing weight or I want to get my diabetes under control or I want to control my hypertension. I'm going to throw that goal out the window to eat this, you know, whatever processed piece of garbage that looks delicious in this moment. Right. And that's sort of like a, a miniaturized version of addiction. Like, okay, I'm willing to throw out what's important to me and lose sight of my goal um, in order to have this instant gratification right now. Um, and so, and then the brain does that feels better temporarily and then believes like, well, that's the coping skill. And so that continues to be the coping skill unless you retrain yourself, you know, to use other coping skills. And the ones that are healthiest for you are always going to be the ones that require the most work and are not going to be as, you know, easily rewarding. And so, yeah, it's a pain in the ass. The glutamate is the neurotransmitter to memory, and that's part of why it's related to remembering that that thing gives you more dopamine than 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 the average coping skill, right? Yes. Glutamate is like, I always say it's like the executive assistant to dopamine. So like every time dopamine comes out in, in large amounts, glutamate's right there like, oh, what just happened? Let's write this down and keep a file of this event. And so it has all these files that the like, court oh, reporter. yeah, everything associated with that dopamine gets written down and put in the file. That's good. Yeah. Is, I know, I know these aren't the same things, but I know you can take glutathione. I know there, there, there's things in the, that you can take different vitamins and supplements. Is there a glutamate supplement? No. And it, there will be no need because it's the most abundant neurochemical in your brain. So you don't need any more glutamate. You oh, probably, is it? Okay. Yeah. The, the issue with most things is that it's really hard to get exogenous outside neurotransmitters into the brain. Like it's hard to get them to cross the blood brain barrier. And then even if they do manage to cross that barrier, it's really hard to get them to specify a certain area in the brain, right? Cause there are certain like Parkinson's, for example, where there's a lack of dopamine and that's what causes like all of the symptoms. But and there are some replacement drugs. There are some drugs that give dopamine to the brain. So the question people ask, well, why can't we take these anti-Parkinson drugs to treat addiction? And the answer is because that dopamine does not get into the area where the addiction happens. We just can't seem to get it to target to that area. So yeah, it's, it's, I mean, the brain's complicated. So yeah. Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> Perfect. The, uh, the, the, with the downregulation in dopamine and the brain needing more uh, dopamine than the average brain, right? I'm, of course, thinking of all the things that my, you know, friends and I and my husband jumping out of planes and bungee jumping and, you know, swimming with sharks and all the things that we have done and, and frankly have, you know, tried to have done well into, a, into sobriety to try to get that extra dopamine is there a way to fix asking for a friend? Is there a way to 
increase the amount of dopamine in the brain or, or retrain so that our brains don't need quite as much? Or is that kind of something we are a, a, a brain state that we're living with, you know, um, what's the, you know, in perpetuity? For lack of I mean, a everybody term. has like a natural threshold. Everybody has a place where their dopamine level has to exceed in order for them to feel good and normal, you know? And I think that I'm, I do think that there's a good amount of study on, um, on, on like risk taking genes. There are certain people that have those and we need those people because they're the ones that are going to help us during the apocalypse, you know, continue to stay <laughs> alive as a species. But, you know, and so I think that if you have those genes that, yeah, you're always going to require sort of a higher, level of endorphins and, and, you know, risk, um, in order to sort of achieve those dopamine levels, you know, I, I think for most people having, finding like a purpose in life and really like trying to achieve a life outside of self and being of service, like that will always, I think, dump enough dopamine in someone's brain to sort of help them navigate, uh, life and feel good. But it's really, I mean, no, not everybody's going to be like mother Teresa. I mean, it's just not possible. You know, so, but I do think that people who really like, um, people who sort of love their work or the thing that they spend the most time doing, if they really, really just, it doesn't feel like work at all, are, you'll find need fewer and fewer sort of bigger moments and distractions and things to sort of achieve those feelings because they're pretty satisfied in their day to day. Whereas, you know, if people are just like, okay, I'm doing my job, I'm happy, things are okay you know, but there's still something missing. I'm still seeking, you know, and for me, like I would say that I, uh, not necessarily a big, I don't have probably the risk taker gene, but maybe I have a novelty seeking gene and I'm always seeking novelty. And so like, people are always like, Oh, what's your, you know, like, Oh, what are you doing now? Like, Oh, you're writing a book. You're going to get your black belt. You're going to Mm-hmm. get another degree and do all these things. I'm like, yeah, I don't do these things because I'm like this amazingly ambitious person. I do these things because I novelty seek. And if I don't have a goal that I'm constantly trying to work toward, then I f- start to sort of fall backward and feel restless and irritable and don't know what I'm doing. So I constantly need a goal that I'm working towards in order to feel normal. So that's where my dopamine comes from is that novelty of a new goal, um, trying to achieve the next thing you know, whatever it is. And I try and be realistic now at this point in my life, but you know, that's always where, where it's at for me. Yeah. Yeah. I think I have, I think I have the novelty gene more than I have the risk taking gene, but the risk, the novelty has sometimes shown up in the risk taking question for you about what can we do? And, and it sounds like you have a, um, you're a mom and as parents, how can we support the children who have genetic predispositions, right? We don't know if they have the gene per se, but I mean, I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure mine do. Um, But what can we do as we watch our children grow up or parents who are seeing, you know, teenagers or whatever, seeing the signs that we see of that are, that are related to things that we know are, you know, that, that, kind of dis-ease, that, that discontent, you know, not feeling, feeling like you're born with your skin too tight, all the things that we kind of talk about. What uh, hypersensitivity emotionally as, as a, a specialist, something I always am thinking about, okay, yes, we have these, we have these things we're doing to respond, to treat. What can we do to prevent? How do we prevent? How do we, and, and even if it doesn't stop them from being addicts, how do we help them do things that when it happens, 
they get to where they, you know, it saves their life or we get to where they need to be faster coping skills. So, I mean, uh, educate, 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 right? There's a big, a lot of people really, especially people that get sober before they have kids or when their kids are really young, have this sort of tendency to be like, I don't want my kids to ever know, you know, what that was like. Um, they don't want to like talk about it. And like, no, that's the opposite of what I believe needs to happen. I believe we need to talk to our kids at age appropriate time, like in age appropriate ways throughout their life to sort of let them know, not necessarily like, Hey, you're, you're going to be in trouble, but Hey, just so you know, you know, your friends may be able to do this and be okay. And you may not. And so you want to keep that in mind every time you decide to, to do that or whatever. And as far as like prevention, like I'm definitely not a, a, an adolescent specialist or anything like that. Like I don't, I don't really specialize in children's or developmental of their brain or anything like that. But, but I think, and I don't know how you prevent, but I agree with you that I think that laying down the foundation of what treatment is before they start using is really key. And so I'm, I, I'm always open to and listening for ideas um, for basically taking what we do in treatment, which is like teaching people how to find themselves and their, you know, the character work through your character defects, look at what your coping skills are. Why do you have these defense mechanisms? What, you know, what am I seeing? And then how do we treat it in adulthood? And then again, age appropriately sort of manipulate it so that it's a a foundation building. So yes. So that if they do wind up using that skill set and that foundation is there, because I, I always talk about like skills in general are like, you know, walking a footpath through the woods. And then every time you practice that skill, that path gets wider and wider, you know, and by the time you're ready to play the instrument at Carnegie Hall, you have a 16 lane highway with traffic in both directions. You're that skilled, right? So then you put down the guitar and you just hang up police tape and say, don't use this road anymore, but the road's still there. It may infrastructure gets weaker, you get potholes, you know, whatever. But eventually if you pick back up that guitar, you rebuild that road. It's a lot easier than, the initial, you know, place. So same thing, coping skills, stress relieving skills, self-awareness skills, all of those self-soothing skills, all of those things are skills. So teaching kids how to do those things really early on to lay down that, that road work so that even if they do wind up picking up, you know, substances at some point and hanging that police tape over that skill set, it's still there. The foundation's still there. So it may be easier for them to transition back into using those skills versus having to totally teach them from the ground up, which is a lot harder. Yeah. Yeah. I I like that. Um, I like that a lot. When we, as we want to use your definition or a definition of addiction, I think this is a really important thing because people will ask this a lot. Definition of addiction is a dysregulation of the midbrain dopamine, the pleasure system, due to unmanaged stress resulting in symptoms of decreased function, specifically loss of control, craving, and persistent drug use despite negative consequences. If you have those three things together, that is really falls into the definition of addiction. The definition of addiction, now the definition of treatment and and you you talked about the resources available. This is really interesting. I heard one of your interviews and you were talking about the resources available to healthcare professionals. And funny, my response to the person asking you this was, you, I think they said like, can you tell us how it's different from general population? And I thought, well, there's, it's worse in some ways because there's a lot more hanging over your head. Like in my head, I'm going, it's not as good. It's not as, you know, there, there's these things involved because of my 
working with doctors who are trying to get sober and there's so much on the line. You had a really great perspective on it and your perspective, which included the length of time that you're given, is something I talk about ad nauseum about why 30, 60, 90 is simply insufficient as it relates to the problem that we're dealing with. And, and so when we, I talked, we just talked about the definition of addiction. Can you tell me about what your definition of adequate treatment looks like and why healthcare providers get that and general population might not? So, I mean, adequate treatment is however long it takes for a person to develop the appropriate amount of coping skills and to get enough practice in that they can utilize those coping skills in times of stress or triggers or whatever, right? As well as allowing the brain to sort of re-regulate and only require a normal amount of dopamine, which could be anywhere from 90 days to two years, depending on what your skill building is. The, the issue with um, healthcare providers, f- physicians specifically, is like you know, there are several layers to it. Number one, most of them are not getting into treatment because they're ready. Cause they're like, Hey, my life's a shit show. I'm ready to get treatment. Most of them are going into treatment because they got caught. Right. And so similar to the people, uh, to non healthcare providers that maybe get caught and are in drug court or, or in the criminal justice system. If you are not arriving at the place where you feel enough is enough, it doesn't matter what the consequences that someone else imposes on you. You are not at the place where enough is enough, right? So they're not done yet. They're not done using yet. And they're just angry and resentful that someone caught them. Now they can say all the right things, right? But the fact is subconsciously the brain is not ready to stop. So what happens is that these people get caught, they get put in treatment, and then you add into that the compounding factor that most healthcare professionals do have some significant character defects in terms of ego, like huge egos, they're very knowledgeable and difficult to sort of um, humble, bring, you know, get some humble high uh, going, you know, when you bring those in, that, that, that compounds the, the whole treatment process and makes it a lot more difficult. Um, however, because they have licenses and possibly hundreds of thousands of dollars of school loans and their family structure and their job structure, you know, things, these huge things, their egos are tied to their profession, right? As physicians, our egos are so tied to what we do. Like ask, oh, hi, who are you? Oh, I'm a doc. You know what I mean? Like that's part of their identity. So take the fear of taking that away, you know, is enough to compel them to become compliant. And I think what the research on this population has shown is that it takes about five years for somebody who was taken out of their active use when they were not ready and sort of sunk into recovery world and just absolutely buried in recovery. Um, It takes about five years for them to go from compliant to surrender, right? And surrender is like what... I mean, I know that's a 12 step term really more than anything, but surrender really is about like, I'm doing this because I fucking am so tired of my life as it was. Like, I'm ready to just do whatever somebody else tells me. I'm ready to sacrifice that rosé all day so that I can have a normal life, you know, and perhaps achieve more than I was achieving previously, like get rid of the anxiety and the stress and whatever. So, but it takes five years, right? So the first two to three years, most are just very compliant. They're jumping through hoops. They're doing random, they're not using, but it's that white knuckle, like when I get the chance, I will, but I just won't tell anybody, you know, that kind of um, underlying 
But at year five, by five years, most, and I think the number is like 90%, like 92% success rate for this population. Um, most of them are at the point after five, five years, like, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm done. I don't really want to deal with that whole thing again of the, I mean, even the monitoring alone is enough to be like, I don't want to deal with that again. Right. So I think that there's, I think there's something to be said for that, that the rest of the population, you know, it has like a 10 to 20% recovery rate, but the healthcare people have a 90% recovery rate and people are just people. So it has nothing to do with the, the physicians being, you know, physicians. It has to do with the length of time and the fear of what they're going to lose, you know? And so even in the general population, you know, I mean, again, people like value their jobs and their ability to take care of their families. But if they're not tied to their career working at McDonald's or the Circle K or something like that, it's really, you you can't really hold that over. They'll just get another job. Right. So there, you can't really use a career right there and their egos are not nearly as huge either. So you don't have that kind of carrot um, to hold over their heads, you know? So even in that population, the threat of jail, the threat of probation, the threat of losing their kids does help some people to stay clean. But usually those sanctions are for one to two years, right? You almost never see a children's services case or a drug court case lasting five years. And and there are still some successes, but I would venture to say it's probably still in that 20% range after drug court or a children's services case or whatever um, for people who have true addiction, right? So, but I don't know as a taxpayer that I really could justify a five-year drug court or children's services. You know what I mean? Like, so those things get expensive and I'm not sure that they would really work anyway, but I'm just saying that, yes, uh, you know, 30, 60, 90 day, and then you're done programs. There's something to be said. There's a lot of stuff crammed into that short period of time, you know, if somebody's really ready. But I would say that like a huge majority of people that come into treatment are not there because they are like, I'm done. I can't do this. It's because their kids are taken away because they have legal consequences because they're going to lose a job. They're going to lose a spouse. Like, you know, financially, they, they lost their house. Like there's some external force that sort of put them in this position of like, okay, fine. I got to go get, get clean, you know, and I think in that short sort of duration, that's never going to be enough to overcome sort of all those brain chemicals that are, that have gone wonky at that point. So yeah, it's tough, but I don't know how you fix it. Honestly, I don't, you know, I, I work with a nurse practitioner at, um, in Akron, you know, who's been doing this addiction medicine for like a hundred years or something. And, um, she'll talk all the time about the eighties, the good old eighties, when you could put people in treatment for six months, eight months, nine months, you know, and that people did a lot better with that. But the problem is our treatment wasn't as good in the eighties. So you, you got the length of stay, the insurance would cover a length of stay, but the treatment wasn't as good. Now the treatment is better, but we can't get the length of stay. Nobody will give us the length of stay. So it's really just, just kind of a shitty uh, situation. Uh, Obviously our healthcare system needs work too, uh, in order to make that work. So, yeah, yeah. I'm always harping on, you know, that length of stay is really one of the biggest indicators of success. And that when people, um, I've worked with a lot of people who have a decent budget and they want to spend it all on the first 30 days. They want to go to a, you know, 30 day luxury residential program and, you know, they have 60 grand 
that they're going to spend on the entire course of this person's treatment. And I say, look, you don't spend all 60, you don't buy the Bentley with no money for an oil change, right? Because then it's not going to run. So, you know, we, we need to think about this as, as it relates to 60 grand is the total amount of money or whatever the total, you know, that I'm just throwing that number out there, but the total amount of money you're going to use. And we're not going to spend it all upfront on those 30 days because the longer you, the, you know, the more aftercare, the more support monitoring, the longer you do this, the better the chance the outcomes are going to be. And outcomes include the ability to come back to recovery after a relapse. Um, it doesn't, you know, it's not just like never slips up, but also the ability to come, the ability to get back into recovery after, after a relapse, which is, you know, an important part of the conversation of what recovery might look like after treatment. As I saw it, and I, I went to a lot of treatment centers and I only went to one 30 day, the rest were all long-term and I have zero recollection of the first 30 days of any program I was in unless I was already sober. I went to the Meadows after being sober for like six months or something from another treatment center because I'm just like a treatment center winner. And uh, it's the only one, I, the only first 30 days of treatment I remember. I have zero. And not only that, but I've been, I got in like serious fraternizing trouble, you know, in the first 30 days of several of these programs. I don't remember, like the, I don't even remember, you know, so I find it really interesting. Like, how are these people getting well in the first, like in 30 days? I don't even remember the first 30 days. Like you do a lot of detox supervision as a physician. Are people, are you guys using better drugs to get people off of the other drugs or what's, how do people remember those first 30 days? Are they using less? Like, isn't th the first 30 just detox? for the brain, at least from a physical perspective? I mean, I think no matter what the first 30, yeah, are going to be, it's going to be difficult. You're going to be in a fog. I always, I remember feeling like a piece of cheese and the world's a cheese grater, like brushing your teeth feels awful. Like everything is no longer in that bubble of like comfort. Right. So, I mean, I think that's no matter what, but no, I don't think that, I think, you know, the the initial week of detox is really just getting the chemicals out of the system. You do see people clear. I mean, you do see a difference between day one and day seven in terms of their ability to think, but yes, they still do struggle, you know, in every place that I work, every treatment center that I work at, you know, um, has some sort of like continuum, you know? Um, and I always, I think of addiction treatment and the disease, the chronicity, I think of it like a bookshelf and like you have the bookends and then the middle, you know, and you can kind of read through any of those volumes at any time. So, you know, and at one end is the harm reduction. Like the goal is just to, to not die. Um, and so, you know, we, if that's your goal, then we, then we need to support that as well. So if you want to keep using a ton of other substances, but not the one that's going to kill you and we can support that and, and needle exchange and fentanyl testing strips and all the things, fine. And that's, that's your goal. That's what we support. And on the other end, the other bookend is sort of that thrive beyond use, right? Like, so you're done using, you're done with the bulk of all of the skill building. So now what do you want to do with your life? Find your purpose, use your purpose, get to the place where your daily life, you know, living is giving you fulfillment, right? So that's that thrive. And then everything in the middle sort of is that treatment. And, and yeah, I think your whole life, you're kind of somewhere in that spectrum if you have the disease. 
And so like everywhere I work sort of has bits and pieces of that whole middle section for the most part, the treatment aspects. And basically it's just a matter of sort of, uh, you, you know, meeting people where they're at and trying to figure out where to best fit them um, in a way that they can uh, integrate the things that they're going to get into their current life system. Right. So uh, it's not a perfect, it's not a perfect system. And I don't think it ever could be really, because again, I, I, while I, I was in treat, I was in residential treatment for like, I don't know, 72 days or something like that. Um, and then did outpatient for like a year and, and then individual for a year, you know, I mean, it was ongoing. I think that for me, that 72 days was sufficient. That was what I needed. And that's what I got. And, you know, I think that at, at that point I had gotten everything out of it that I possibly could. And that was sort of how they made the determination, right? Because for physicians, it doesn't matter if your insurance doesn't pay, you got to pay. So, you, you know, it's not about the money. Oh, your insurance cut you off. So we're kicking you out. It's like, nope, we think you've gotten everything out of this that you're going to get out of it. Um, and I think that will vary from person to person, depending on where they are in the process, you know, but I, I just, I don't think we're ever going to be really great at, you know, individualizing everything for everyone, because I just think everybody is too different. You know, I also, you know, like uh, medication, I use medication all the time. I use medication assisted treatment, right? There are also some aspects where I work, uh, where I use medication as treatment, right? So it's more harm reduction. There's not, there's no, like none of that middle volumes of books, associated, but I'll give you medication to keep you alive. And if you feel ready at some point to, to engage in the, the growing of life, then we'll do that. Um, but mostly I do medication assisted treatment, right? And so again, I look at the people that come into a residential, they fresh out of detox, they walk in the door and they're like, when do I get to be on medicine? When do I get this medicine? It's like, well, you're in a, I'm not trying to deny anybody the ability to get, it's, it's evidence-based, the gold standard, blah, 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 whatever. I get it. And I use it all the time. But you just walked into the door of treatment. You're in a safe place. Your roommate's not actively using where you're going to overdose. You've got some time to sort of work on skills. Let's do that. Let's work on some skills because right now you're making choices from a not so healthy place. So let's try and get a little bit healthier before we make choices. And I think that if we start including patients in that process a little bit more, like down the road, that we'd be better off instead of this sort of cookie cutter. Here's your 30 day program, 60 day program, 90 day program. Like, okay, your head's cleared a little bit. You seem more reasonable. You seem to have more insight. You're really participating in these group therapies. You're really um, engaged in your um, discharge planning and what you're going to do next. So let's start talking about what you think your treatment should look like at this point, you know? Um, but in the beginning, no, you don't, you don't really get a say and, you know, because you're just not making good choices. So I think really looking individually makes a difference. <laughs> good, not making good choices is like, that could have been my, the, my memoir title. You have this opportunity. Uh, yeah, I'll call it opportunity where you are both a person in recovery engaged in very engaged in the recovery world, but also a medical professional, a physician. And I'm wondering what is it that, you think will break the stigma or help, I shouldn't say break, but help to break the stigma and, and push progress around addiction 
in the medical community from your perspective, of course? I think so. I mean, education is important and I do feel like that helps because I've seen it in my own communities. Like I have seen where I've gone and done multiple lectures and talks uh, with the healthcare professionals and the allied professionals in my communities and their practices have changed because of it. And so I've seen that. So just some education um, really is very helpful because they're not getting very much of it. Um, But I think the next step is really to integrate. I think we need to start integrating treatment. Like we we're saying, Hey, addiction is a disease just like diabetes, but we're going to put the treatment for it over here. And we're going to have the treatment for all the other diseases over here. And so finding a way to integrate the two. So Things like moving the detox units into hospitals, into medical surgical hospitals. And yes, it's a separate unit because there are certain things that have to happen. Or if it's not a unit, then there's different rules for the people there for detox. But it's integrated. It's the same. You're, You're getting treated on a medical floor in a hospital, just like somebody who's getting treated for other high blood pressure, out of control, diabetes, whatever. Right. And then I think the same thing, like having maybe intensive outpatient programming and counseling happening at primary care offices or having primary care providers in the facilities where, you know, intensive outpatient is happening that people can come to even if they're not, if they don't have addiction. So having a primary care office in the building where treatment is happening, but it's open to the public, you know, um, having a residential treatment, having sober houses integrated into the society not like one section of town, like, oh, these are all the sober houses, or this is an apartment building for sober people. That's a disaster waiting to happen. But taking these out, like in Worcester, I know where I am at 180, um, 180 has, I think, eight sober houses, and they are just like throughout the community, just in, you know, just regular houses. And we keep small numbers of people, three people, four people in the houses, but they're just part of the community. So it's not like, you know, we're not putting like a scarlet letter over their door. And I think that that's probably going to be the the best way to sort of destigmatize it is like call it a disease, treat it like a disease. So treat it the same way. So health centers should be integrated health centers and they should be able to have all the levels of care. Now, I know that there are nursing homes and there are assisted living homes and there are sniffs and all these different levels of care for, for medical disease. So residential is obviously going to be a separate place, but having it related to the hospital or the main health system or whatever, I think is what the key will be instead of just these like pockets of treatment in the community that don't communicate that aren't part of the health system. I think that'll be the best way. I like that. I like that a lot. Um, feels doable too, um, which is always a helpful thing. Last question for you. Do you have any uh, thoughts, hopes, or otherwise on the advancements being made with psychedelics and depression, anxiety as a cure, not necessarily as a, you know, take a little here and there, but do you have any thoughts? Well, I'm not a psychiatrist. I don't really... I try not to have too many opinions on it. Psychedelics uh, in general do not really affect the dopamine reward system. So they don't really have, I don't want to say they don't have a place in the addiction repertoire, but they, they're not the same. They don't function the same way in the brain as the, uh, the other substances that we tend to see. So people, again, you're not going to sell your ass at a truck stop for some LSD. It's just, it's, I don't, 
think that that's something that happens. So as far as the microdosing and all of that, I'll leave that to the people who are doing the studies on it. I mean, again, to be fair, I think that most of the uh, pharmacotherapies we have now are kind of experimental, right? I mean, I, anybody that's ever been on a psychotropic for depression or anxiety is like, well, we'll try this one. And if it doesn't work, then we'll try this one. And, you know, and now they're doing some genetic testing to see which ones will work better. And I guess that's a little bit more sort of scientifically based, but I, I think that anything with the brain is kind of experimental. We just don't know that much about it. So if people are having success, uh, with those things, then great, good for them. You know, I don't, I don't begrudge anyone feeling better, um, if they don't feel well or right or normal, like I, I would not want to hinder somebody feeling normal or well, just because they're using something that previously was seen as sort of bad or dangerous or addictive or whatever. So makes sense. Well, thank you so much for your time. Um, your book, The Addict Holic Deconstructed, an irreverently quick and dirty education by a doctor who says fuck a lot. Uh, love that. Where can people get your book and where can they find, uh, reach out to you if, if they're interested in learning more? So the book is on Amazon. It's available in audible, like audio version, Kindle and paperback. I'm pretty sure if you just went on even just barnesandnoble.com or walmart.com and looked up the addictaholic deconstructed, you would find it or look me up labor, Dr. Labor. And then, you know, my email is the at gmail.com. So T H E A D D I C T S D O C at gmail.com. Um, but I'm also on Facebook. I'm Nicole Labor, the addiction assassin on Facebook. Um, I'm the addict stock on Instagram. Um, and people reach out to me via DM or PM all the time or via email. So yeah, I mean, I'm pretty accessible, uh, if people really want, but I always like, generally I'm always like, well, did you read my book? Because I explained this in the book. So, um, <laughs> that's generally going to be my first uh, and that was the reason I wrote the book, right? It's because I get asked the same question so often. So I'm going to just read the book and that will help you. Um, so yeah, that's that's available. I also always have copies on me and in my office that people want to physically come and see me in Worcester. I have them. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate your time and, and you answering all of my questions. And uh, I know that, again, I know you talk about this stuff a lot and I just think it's super important and helpful. And I I love that you are able to cross the divide between, you know, physician and addict, and we need more and more people. And I know there, I know a lot of uh, physicians who are in recovery who don't talk about it. And so I appreciate that you talk about it. So thank you very, very much for being here. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. LionRock.life is a recovery community offering free online support group meetings, useful recovery information, and entertainment. Visit www.lionrock.life to view the meeting schedule and find additional resources. Find the joy in recovery at LionRock.life.